This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's ask God's direction upon our study. Our Father, we're thankful that we have your word to guide and direct us, to inform us as to what the eternal values are that you have built into the fabric of creation and that you have revealed to us how we are to live if we are to live in fellowship with you, in harmony with your creation, and that as we study through the book of Proverbs, we have been impacted by the teaching related to the pursuit of wisdom and that the foundation for the pursuit of wisdom is to fear you. Uh, Humility is the starting point. Humility before you is the starting point of growth, spiritual growth, maturity, and which all leads to the path of wisdom in life. Now, Father, as we study this morning, we pray that you challenge us with what we study, cause us to think differently about uh, key areas of our life as we reflect upon the uh, teaching of your word, that we might take these principles and apply them in our lives, always being willing to uh, push the boundaries in terms of living a life that is focused on your word, living out your viewpoint in every area of our life that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31, we're going to study the uh, last part of the last chapter dealing with the uh, godly woman is, I think, the New American Standard translates it, or the virtuous woman is the New King James translates it, or uh, valorous woman, as other translations uh, look at it. We'll take a little study of that. But um, I've often facetiously said when we uh, look at the New American Standard translation, which uh, translated it, a godly woman who can find. I always said, well, they just miss mispunctuated that. It's not a question. It is a statement. We're looking, men are looking for godly women who can find, who can find their wallet, their car keys, their... (laughs) But when you come to Proverbs 31, this is a chapter that I find often ignored in a lot of contemporary discussions related to uh, Christian values and Christian teaching on the role of men and women. Make no mistake, we are in a crisis here, and most of us in this room who think that we have somehow uh, learned what the Bible teaches about the roles and responsibilities of men and women have been more impacted by the pagan viewpoints that have been promoted in our culture over the last 100 years than we're willing to admit. And that's a problem. 
It's a problem. It's an increasing problem that's, that's occurring within evangelical churches. And it doesn't just impact issues of what does it mean to be a woman and what does it mean to be a man and what are the, what's the proper role and responsibility of men and women in marriage and authority issues and things of that nature. It has spilled over, as many perceptive people knew it would, into the whole issue of identification of, of, of gender. Uh, we now have a, uh, a law, as I referenced last Sunday morning, signed into law in Southern California, I mean in California by the governor of California, that uh, uh, allows for uh, parents or children to uh, define the uh, sexual orientation or the gender of children so that they can choose to go to, go to the, no matter what, what their physical characteristics might be, they can go to a uh, boys' restroom in school or a girls' restroom in school, and they that that sexual identity is no longer a function of biology; it is a function of of social construct, and it's a subjectively determined uh, thing. We have just absolutely lost uh, all sense of what is right and what is wrong. Uh, when we have come this far, and the impact of this further degradation of our understanding of of uh, what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman is going to have further disastrous conse- uh, consequences on the family, on the home, and on the very fabric uh, of society. The unintended consequences of this kind of foolishness, and I'm using that term in the proverbial sense, as we've studied in uh, Proverbs, leads to death, a death-like existence. The key verse, as we've seen in Proverbs, is repeated twice. It's in Proverbs 14.12. There is a way that seems right to man, that on the basis of limited, finite human thought, there there are views and ideas and opinions that appear to be right and justifiable, but the end of it is death. Not just physical death, but a death-like existence. It leads to the self-destruction of the individual, self-destruction of marriage, self-destruction of a national entity. What we've studied in terms of the divine institutions has been that God established certain uh, social absolutes that were built into creation itself at the very beginning. We call these divine institutions. They are not options. They did not develop because man got together and over a period of time decided that this really worked better to do it this way, and so we're going to have marriage, and it works better that way, and so we're going to have families. Um, These were built in by the Creator into the very makeup of man before there was ever sin, which is a, a crucial thing to realize is that marriage and family were designed by God for the perpetuation and stability of the human race and for the uh, teaching and instruction and training of subsequent generations in terms of the truth of God's word. Once sin entered into the picture, that became more and more of a problem. And as I have taught and worked through uh, numerous times with, with everyone here in the past, when we look at the outline of what God uh, brings as a judgment against the serpent and against the woman and then against the man in Genesis chapter 3 are directly related 
to the initial commands that God gave to Adam and the woman and uh, the creation, as it were, uh, that were embedded in these uh, divine institutions. Uh, Adam was to uh, was to guard and take care of the garden. He failed to do that. Now the garden, in, after the curse, is going to produce thorns and uh, thistles and is going to be difficult to uh, take care of because nature itself, creation itself, will is under a curse and will fight back. Uh, the woman was to, uh, and the man together, were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And after, uh, the, the, after the sin and the curse, the woman is now going to suffer pain and suffering along with childbirth that would not have been present before. That's because now the area of her responsibility has now been uh, impacted by, by sin and, and corruption. And there will be antagonism between uh, the animals uh, and man, but even more so between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That's Genesis 3.15. So uh, from that point on, there was a fragmentation in man's, uh, mankind's understanding of the roles of men and women. Eve, when she listened to the serpent instead of staying under the umbrella of the authority of Adam, set a precedent for women acting independently of the authority of their husband. Now, that's not a popular concept today, but it's clearly taught in Scripture. But authority is so poorly understood in our culture today that whenever you hear somebody teach the biblical viewpoint, uh, I, I can almost see balloons over some people's heads going up. That, that, that That's just patriarchal or that's so old-fashioned or what about this situation or that situation or this other situation? And we've talked about these things in depth in discussing the passages in Ephesians chapter uh, 5 and, and Colossians chapter 3 related to the roles of men and women. Another problem that comes in is that even in the Christian community, there are, there's often a stereotypical pattern established for what men are supposed to do and what women are supposed to do that in and of itself is not necessarily biblical. Uh, it's often misrepresented that, that, well, you listen to the Bible, women just are supposed to stay home and be barefoot and pregnant the whole time. That's a misrepresentation of Scripture. Women shouldn't work outside the home. That's a misrepresentation of Scripture. Uh, Proverbs 31 looks at a different facet of the issue of the role of women, and it's a glorious passage, and it's a challenge not only to women in terms of setting a, a standard or goal for how to be a virtuous uh, what a virtuous and valorous woman is like, but it's written in the context of a mother's advice to her son that this is the kind of woman that he is to look for at, for in terms of a wife. The chapter begins in verse 1, the words of King Lemuel. Now, we don't know who who uh, King Lemuel was. His exact identity is unknown. We don't know if this was another name for Solomon or if this refers to a Gentile king who uh, had uh, who was 
writing wisdom literature at the time, not unlike Job. Job lived at the time, was a Gentile, lived at the time of Abraham, and of course he is the author of the book of Job. So uh, we're not exactly sure who King Lemuel is, but he tells, tells us in this first verse that this is the utterance which his mother taught him. And this includes the entire chapter, not just the first nine verses. And so he, uh, his mother is giving him guidance and direction on how to find a virtuous wife and what that, that woman looks like. And so as we uh, look at this passage, we're going to see some remarkable things uh, that are emphasized in terms of the character and the work of the, uh, of the virtuous, valorous woman. As we look at this section from verse 10 down to verse 31, there's basically three sections. The first section is a general introduction in the first three verses. Verses 10 through 12 uh, emphasize her value, that she is highly valued. She is rare. Uh, it's rare to find a woman who exhibits all of these qualities and characteristics. But she, they are out. women like this are out there, and these values are attainable by every woman, especially if you are a church-age believer and dwelt by God the Holy Spirit and filled by God the Holy Spirit and capable of pursuing spiritual maturity. Then in verses 13 through 27, we see the specifics of her life. And in these specifics, we come to understand what it means to be a virtuous or valorous woman a woman of integrity. It's defined by her character and by her life. And so we'll take some time looking at those verses from 13 through 27. And then there's a summary praise of the virtuous, valorous woman in verses 28 through 31. So let's begin by looking at the introductory summary. Proverbs 31.10 says, Who can find a virtuous wife? The implication here is this is rare. It's hard to find. Her value is beyond rubies, as the King James says. We'll see that needs a a little correction in that translation. The heart of her husband safely trusts her. Emphasis on the intimacy, the honesty, and the the trust that takes place within this, this union because of her character and his. So he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her of her life. A couple of interesting things that we should note as we begin this uh, uh, look at this chapter or this section is that there's more to this than meets the eye in English. There's a lot that goes on in this particular uh, uh, poem that is almost untranslatable. The word chayil, as we'll see in a minute, that is translated virtuous is really a, a, a word that can have a wide range of meanings, and so it's difficult to find one English word that does it justice. That's why I've been saying virtuous, valorous. Uh, there's more to it th- than that. There are, uh, there are different uh, things that are indicated by the style, and one thing we should note is that Proverbs 31 is a poem that's written as an acrostic. 
An acrostic is a poem where each verse or each line begins with the uh, next letter in the alphabet. So your first line in Proverbs uh, 31.10 begins with a word that uh, starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Aleph. And then the next verse begins with the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Bet. Now, some people think that this was primarily done in order to uh, facilitate memory and memor- memorization of the passage. But it's also done as a way of forcing the writer as well as the reader to think more precisely about what is being said. Uh, when you're forced by the style of poetry to slow down and reflect upon how it's written and why it's this it's written this way, then we pay more attention to, to the content. We, we see more things. Uh, I've mentioned that we're going to start a, an evening series in, on Sunday evening starting, uh, the third Sunday in, um, in September with a focus on, uh, Bible study, how to study the Bible. And one of the things that, that I, I will be emphasizing is how important it is to do things like just look at a passage that you want to study and then hand write it out. Just copy it out for yourself. There are things that you begin to see when you're doing that that, that you didn't necessarily see when you just read it. And in many of our cases, we're so familiar with the passage, we've read it or heard it several times, that it's almost white noise. We hear it and we don't really stop and think about each particular word. Uh, this is, for, for me, one of the values of studying in the original languages. It forces you to really slow down and look at each particular word, look at its construction, the word order, all these kinds of details, because under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, this was how uh, God's word was constructed uh, for us to study. And so this is written as an acrostic, and the emphasis on there is is more than just for memory. Oftentimes God has, has he multitasks and has different uh, reasons and ways for why he puts things together, but also to force us to think about why things are said the way they are said. That, of course, is not uh, always translatable into into English. Now, as we begin to look at in terms of the vocabulary in the first in the first verse, it's a question, a somewhat rhetorical question designed to get us to think about what a valorous or virtuous woman is. Do we know one? What characterizes her? How do we come to see this displayed in her life? Uh, the, the, the word there translated virtuous is a word, chayil, which is often used in the context of war. It's a word that is often used to describe a warrior, a man of valor, a man of great courage and accomplishment on the battlefield, someone who has learned the skill of combat and excels at that skill. So it's translated as valiant or courageous, uh, valor, virtue, strength, wealth. It has a wide range of meaning, so it's, it's not always easy to just compress all of that, those senses into one English word. 
And so this is a woman who uh, is the personification of the application of wisdom, which is the main idea in the entire book of Proverbs. So this is a woman who has learned the word of God and has worked at skillfully applying it in every area of life. She is a competent uh, it's not simply a matter of moral virtue. The New American Standard translates the term as a godly woman. Well, the term godly woman in English conveys more of the idea of a spiritually mature woman than a physically, economically competent woman. And yet that's very much a part of this. This is a woman who knows how to live life and live life well. It's not just a woman who has a great spiritual life, but she is engaged in her culture, in her community, and in commerce in a way that, that benefits all those who are around her. So it's not simply a matter of simple spiritual uh, maturity. Her value then is said to be far above rubies in the in the King James, but in the Hebrew it's paninim, which is a word for corals. It's a word some translations translate simply as as jewels, but uh, uh, corals were very uh, were rare and valuable in the ancient world, and so the emphasis here is on the fact that she is a rarity. It is not uh, not usual not common to find a woman who exhibits these these qualities. There's one woman in the scripture, though, who is mentioned as being a chayil woman, and that is Ruth. In Ruth 3.11, she is not called a virtuous woman. So what we see here is that this woman is a valiant, trustworthy woman. She is energetic. She works hard. She works uh, not only within the home but outside of the home. She's extremely resourceful, which leads to uh, economic prosperity and wealth. But because of her efforts, and we see a sense in which all of her efforts are, are, are oriented uh, towards the success of the family, that the prestige and the influence of her husband is enhanced. And that's an important principle to learn here. We live in an age today when individuality has been so overstressed in many areas that the concept of marriage as a team effort uh, has often been lost. It only takes one person to destroy a marriage, but it takes two to make that marriage successful. And when they are working together towards the standard of having a successful uh, marriage to the glory of God, then they can achieve that. But if they substitute individual goals and individual agendas for the biblical goal of a solid, uh, spiritually-based uh, marriage, then they run the risk of it collapsing and falling falling apart. So in the introduction, we're told that we're going to come to understand what it means to be this kind of chayil or virtuous, valorous woman. We're going to see those qualities exhibit, exhibited in the poem. The second verse says, the heart of her husband safely trusts her. This is the Hebrew word batach, which means to trust in someone, to rely upon someone, or to have confidence in someone. This is an interesting word that is used here because in all but one other uh, use of this word in the, in the scripture, 
It emphasizes trust in God. Outside of this particular verse and Judges 20, verse 36, Scripture condemns trust in anyone or anything apart from God. So the use of this word, and of course I've pointed out in the past, poetry uses different words and gives, uh, uh, it's not as rigid in its use of words as other types of literature, but that would be something that if you were a, a native a Hebrew reader, that would strike you as as making this this comparison she is so faithful and trustworthy within the family that her husband relies and has great confidence uh in her because she is um she is one who fears who herself fears the lord and because of her spiritual and uh physical competence uh, they have a, it also implies a rich spiritual relationship between the husband and the wife. And then the second part presents the cause of his trust, that he has no lack of gain. And here we have an interesting word. There's two or three places in here where you really get, have an unusual word, uh, brought into the context. It's almost jarring to get, uh, to get attention. The object here is not that he, so he will have no lack of, of, of possessions or his needs met, but it's a word that is used normally to refer to the spoils of war, uh, the spoils of combat. So it pictures that what she is doing is engaging in, in, within the home and outside of the home in something analogous to a combat relationship in order to uh, win uh, spoils for the benefit of the family. As a result, she, we're told in verse 12, as a summary, she does him good and not evil. Now, the word translated good is the Hebrew word tov, which does not in and of itself imply uh, moral goodness or righteousness. Uh, when God created the heavens and the earth, he said that they were good. Well, they're neither moral nor immoral. They are what he intended them to be. So that's the core meaning of the word. But later on, when God talks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, it's introduced, now the word tov is used in juxtaposition with the word ra, which is the Hebrew word for evil. And so then it picks up a, from the context, a moral uh, connotation. And so what we see here is that this is emphasizing what she does for him. She does him good. She does that which benefits him and which benefits the family. It's the family and the prosperity of the family unit that is the goal in her decisions. Man, it should be the goal of your decisions as well. That's the focal point. It's not what's best for me. Uh, it's what's best for us, what's best for the marriage, what's best for the family. Um, so she doesn't do that which is evil, and she does it all the days of her life. There's a consistency here, a pattern here that goes uh, throughout her life, and this characterizes her relationship uh, with him. She doesn't fail. She's constant. She's reliable. She's not fickle. She's not temperamental. She's not cold one day, hot the next. There is a consistency there. At this point, the poem goes on into some specifics to itemize the deeds of the virtuous, valiant woman, where we get an understanding of what it means to be a chayil woman. 
And this shows that she's valuable not just to herself, not just to her husband, but her industriousness overflows to be a blessing to the community around her. Uh, so she contributes uh, in such a way that it ultimately, ultimately leads to the blessing for her husband and empowers him to a position of influence and leadership in the entire land. In fact, what we see here is a great illustration of the idea first presented in um, in the um, in, in Genesis chapter two that the woman is the Aitzer. The she's created in Genesis two eighteen to be a helper uh, for the husband. He's the one given the mission. He's the one who's given the responsibility, and her role is to enhance and aid him in accomplishing God's will and plan. Uh, for his life. So we see in uh, Genesis 32:29 that same word Aitzer is used in uh, in reference to God. In Deuteronomy 33:29 we read happy are you O Israel who is like you a people saved by the Lord the shield of your help that's that word Aitzer. So we live in a world today where the idea that a woman is to be the helper to the man is treated as some sort of subservience that is dishonorable. Oh, you just, you're just another one of those uh, patriarchal types who want to keep women at home where they can't uh, do or fulfill their, all of their talents and, and, and uh, have a benefit to society. You just want to keep them barefoot and pregnant at home. That's just the opposite of what Scripture's teaching here. Uh, the Aitzer in the Old Testament, that word is only applied to one other person. And it's not a human being. It's God. God is consistently referred to as our help, as it is in uh, Deuteronomy 32.9. He is the shield of our help. This is not a position of subservience, but it's a tremendous position of honor. In fact, the word is also used in a compound word, Ebenezer, as we say it in English, Ebenezer in, in Hebrew, that occurs in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. In 1 Samuel 7, the, uh, Samuel and the Israelites are under attack by the Philistines, and they have already been defeated by the Philistines in the past, and so now they fear for their lives. And the Israelite army begs Samuel to pray to God to give them victory uh, against the Philistines. So Samuel offers a sacrifice, prays for God's protection. God responds and gives the Israelite army victory. The Philistines suffer a massive loss and retreat back into their own territory. And then we're told that after the victory, after the battle, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, Ebenezer. The rock, Eben, is the word for rock. Ezer is help. It is a stone memorial to remind Jews that God is the one who helps them. And he says, uh, as he names it, he says, thus far the Lord has helped us. Now this word shows up in a hymn we sing, and often words in some hymns or some phrases strike us as a little odd because we're just not biblically literate enough to understand what's being said. But in uh, the second hymn in our hymnal, Come Thou Found of Every, bless, of Every Blessing, written by Robert Robinson in 1758, 
he, he writes in the second verse, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Now, a lot of people sing that, and the only Ebenezer they know of is Ebenezer Scrooge in uh, Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol. But what he is saying here is, is just as the Jews in the Old Testament raised a monument to the fact that God had helped them to get to this point, so that's what he is saying is that in writing this hymn, I am stating that so far in life I have gotten to where I am because God has helped me and he's the only one to uh, help me. And this is reinforced in the next uh, clause in that verse, hither, that is to hear to this point, hither by thy help I'm come. So that explains the use of that term Ebenezer. So the role of the wife, the virtuous wife, is to enhance the husband to make him a success in pursuing God's uh, calling upon his life, which is one reason I've always said a lot of women need to hold off until uh, you may fall in love with some guy, but if he doesn't know where God's taking him, how do you know you want to help him get there? Basic concept. A lot of women get married way too young, and by the time they figure out that they've got a husband who who wants to be a doctor and he's going to work a lot more than somebody who's a shop clerk, and they want a husband that's going to give them a lot of attention and be around a lot, well, don't marry uh, men who are going into certain kinds of businesses because their responsibilities are going to keep them away from the home much more than others. Uh, do you want to enhance him in going in that direction or not? So... We see this emphasis here on what she does in the home. She seeks, verses 13 through 15, she seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is, she is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. Now we're going to see in verses 14 or 15, that that really misses the point of these two verses. There's, there's just a in, very interesting imagery in that, that the original writer brings out in relationship to the aggressiveness of the godly woman here. Uh, a little bit in terms of the organization here, we see a parallel between verses 13 through 15 in terms of vocabulary with the next three-verse set. As I pointed out, uh, by underlining these words in the Greek, I mean, the Hebrew is transliterated there. Her uh, palms are mentioned in verse uh, 13. Trade is mentioned in, in 14. Uh, rising at night is mentioned in verse 15. Um, then in verse 16, it mentions palms again. Uh, trading mentioned again in verses 17 in the first part of 18. And then uh, night is mentioned again in verse 18. By organizing it this way, these key terms uh, expose for us just the, the close connection between these, these six verses as they talk about her industriousness and her economic value uh, to the household. It starts off talking about her, um, she seeks wool and flax and willing, willingly works with her hands, or with her palms. Uh, she labors. This is obviously an, an more of an aristocratic woman because she has made servants. So it's a successful, uh, a successful household that is, uh, 
that has been very prosperous, but she is not above doing the labor. Once again, we see reflected in this the emphasis in the Scripture on the value of individual labor, the individual laborer, and the importance of, of taking care of oneself through hard uh, hard work, the economic value of that. She seeks wool and flax. This indicates two different kinds of material used in the production of clothing. Uh, wool was expensive. It could be dyed, and it would hold the dye, whereas flax is used for linen, and it would not hold the dye. But she's uh, using uh, uh, these raw materials in order to weave together uh, weave them together in order to create uh, textiles for the purpose of clothing. So she has a, a business that's within the home. Now, you, it would be wrong to press that too far because we live in a very different culture than, the, than they did. Uh, an agrarian culture is quite different from a modern uh, industrial culture, whereas at that time, Almost everything's done within the home or close to the home. So I think some people inadvertently press that, that, that this may, that the woman needs to work only in the home. That would, that's great, but that doesn't always fit the, the real world, the real world scenario. So she is involved in production here and the sale of what is produced. So this is also known as capitalism. Uh, she has invested in these uh, products, and she is working, and then she sells those products and makes a profit. There is nothing wrong with making a profit. And she uses that profit to make even more money. She makes that profit, we see, to invest it in other things to make even more money to advance the economic prosperity of the home. But it's based upon the value of labor, it's not based on the assumption that somehow somebody's going to come in and take care of me. It fits with the first divine institution of personal responsibility that we're all accountable before God for our lives and accountable to him to do what he says to do, and that includes labor. As a result of this, in verse 14, we read that she is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. And this verse links the manufacturing of textiles to her trade. So she has developed a certain profit from her weaving industry, and she uses that in order to seek out uh, food for the family. And it's not just going down to the small local market and getting local produce, but she's seeking foreign delicacies because she has worked hard. She has a greater profit, and so she's now able to use this to buy a greater variety of food for her family. And she brings food from afar. And the Hebrew word here, I want you to notice this because you got the, in English you have the word food here. And then in verse 15, you have her providing food for her household. It's a different word. The word here is lechem, like in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread. It's lechem for bread or it's used for generally to refer to food to refer to food. So she brings her food from afar. She's involved in taking the profits of her business and using that in order to benefit and supply uh, her family. Then we read in verse uh, 15 that 
After uh, planning and executing her various trades to provide food and nourishment for the family, we see a shift in the image from the person who's the trader to the to the prowling lioness on the hunt. In verse 15, you don't get that in English, do you? She also rises while it is yet night. Now, this doesn't de- isn't depicting the fact that she's just an early riser and therefore getting a, a, a start on the day before anyone else. It, it, it's the idea that she is um, seeking prey. The word translated food in this verse is prey. She's pictured as a hunter, as like a lioness going out at night as a predator seeking provisions for her family. And so the providing of food for her family is based on her ingenuity, her industriousness, and her ability to go out and hunt and work hard in order to provide the needs of the family. And she provides food for her household, and here we see an apportion for her maidservants. She provides for those who work for her. And so this is a, a recognition in Scripture, I think, and the implication here that, that part of the job of an employer is to provide well for those who help him be a success for his employees. Now, she has accumulated a certain amount of, of wealth or capital, as we might say, in terms of as a result of her industriousness. And so what is she going to do with this capital? Well, she's going to invest it. In verses 16 through 18, we read that she considers a field and buys it from her profits. Oh, my, there's so, so many people today that think it's wrong for somebody to make profits or for a corporation to make profits or for uh, people to uh, advance in wealth. And yet the Bible, the Bible emphasizes that. In fact, in fact uh, the gospel and missionary activity has expanded throughout the world because there have been numerous uh, people of wealth who have used their wealth to, contri- wealth to contribute and to support uh, missions and missionary activities. And they have endowed seminaries and Bible colleges and churches so that the word of God can go forth without being hindered by worries about finances. So she considers a field and buys it from her profit. She plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. So when you look at this first verse, he considers a field and buys it. The word translated considered is the Hebrew word zamam. And this is a word that indicates uh, investigation, study. She goes out and she looks at available real estate and she's going to make sure that it is a good purchase and she's already probably thinking in terms of how she's going to use it to plant a vineyard. So she wants to make sure she has the appropriate soil, the right drainage, all the different things that would make her her investment in the land profitable. And so she's thinking it through investigating the purchase and buys a field. And then the second part of the verse says she then plants a vineyard there. So she's expanding her business. And she's giving it thought. Uh, verse 17 says that she girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. 
And so this is a picture of the fact that she is uh, involved herself in the labor. She's not just uh, hiring others to do the work, but she is is, uh, doing the labor herself as well, and she is applying everything she has in order to make her venture uh, successful. In verse 18, we read that she perceives that her merchandise is good. This is a Hebrew word, ta'am, meaning to taste or to enjoy. And in this context, she's enjoying the fruits of her own labor. So she uh, tastes or she enjoys her uh, her own merchandise to see that it is good. She enjoys the fruit of her own labor. She benefits from it. And then we're told her lamp does not go out by night. Now, this is an interesting, uh, an interesting idiom here related to uh, her lamp not going out at night. Uh, scripture teaches that it's not wise to work late into the night in Psalm 127.2, especially if you arise while it is still dark. There's a need to have the proper amount of sleep. Even the Scripture represents that. Uh, so it's not just talking about... Um, in fact, that her lamp is, it's not a literal phrase saying that her light doesn't go out all night, uh, but, and she's pulling all nighters every night, but there's a, a, it's related to a pro, a proverbial, uh, idiom in the, uh, ancient world that indicates that if you're poor, you can't afford oil for your lamp. So you, you know, the lamp goes out, you can't afford electricity to, so you turn the lights off early. And her lamp not going out all night indicates that she has the financial resources to buy the oil to keep the electricity going all night. And so it's a metaphor for uh, the fact that there's always money in the house. There's plenty of financial uh, financial resources. Verse 19 kind of brings to a conclusion the uh, emphasis on her cottage industry at home and uh, lays a foundation for going forward. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. These are parts of the of the spinning wheel and, and uh, creating the textiles. Then we come to the second part, and this is built on a chiasm, and I want to read these eight verses to you as a whole. That's why it's a little tight on the screen, but I wanted to put the whole context together before we uh, uh, make some comments. Verse 20, these are, this is the result of her prosperity. See, the basic principle is poor people don't give money to causes because they don't have money. Rich, poor people don't hire, they, they don't hire people for jobs. Uh, those who have wealth supply wealth for many different causes, hospitals, libraries, uh, medical research, all kinds of things are funded by those who are capitalists and those who have accumulated wealth. They don't just take it home and stuff it in their mattress and sit on it. They use it for uh, things and projects to benefit uh, those around them. So it's the same thing with the virtuous woman. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household because she's prepared for disasters. For all her household is clothed with scarlet. Uh, scarlet, uh, you don't have scarlet linen because it doesn't hold the um, the dye well. So this is wool. Wool was more expensive. So they are well clothed with expensive clothing. 
Uh, she makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Purple stands for the kind of clothing. It would be purple wool. So again, it's emphasizing the, the value of her clothing. She's clothed well against the elements. And then the, the focal point of all this is Proverbs 31:23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. What we see here is an emphasis that because of her effort, because of her work, it has enhanced her husband's position in the community, and it enables him to better do what he is doing to fulfill the call of God uh, in his life. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them, supplies sashes for the merchant, strength and honor are her clothing. See, the emphasis here shifts from what she does to who she is. What she does is a result of her internal character. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice, and that is uh, not the best translation, as we'll see. It's really uh, uh, she shall um, uh, have joy in view of what is to come. So she's not afraid of what might happen in the future. Uh, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. What we see here structurally is that this is what's called a chiasm. I've talked about this in the past. It's like the left-hand side of an X. And that's the, in, in the Greek alphabet, that was called the letter chi or ki as we pronounce it usually today. And so that represents uh, just the left-hand side of an X, and it focuses on a uh, the centerpiece of that construction. So we see a parallel between the first line A, which talks about spreading up, um, the palms to the poor, and then the A prime, the last line, is opening mouth with wisdom, looking after her household. Um, and, and so there's a parallelism there. But the reason I'm putting this up here is simply to show that all of this is structured in a way so that it emphasizes that she is bringing blessing upon her household and upon her husband, and this isn't just about her becoming a financial success on her own. It is for the purpose of enhancing the family and uh, and her husband. So this is the structure. She's involved in charitable causes, taking care of those who are truly, uh, truly in need. In the ancient world, especially according to the Mosaic Law, there was a minor safety net within the Mosaic Law in terms of a tithe that was taken up every, every, uh, every third year, but primarily it was the responsibility of individuals, of individuals to take care of the poor, to take care of the widows. It was, it was not a government program. Once you shift it to a government program, you destroy individual incentive and individual sense of responsibility for taking care of those who are less uh, less fortunate. Uh, the 21st verse emphasizes the fact that she is prepared for adversity, both physically as well as spiritually, so that whatever uh, difficulties may come, uh, such as a bad winter storm and being snowed in. And, yes, even in Israel they get bad winter storms sometimes. It's, in fact, this last year they had a record snowfall uh, in Jerusalem uh, last December. Uh, they, so she's not afraid of snow for her household, uh, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. They have been properly uh, prepared for whatever negative things, whatever adversity might come. 
uh, verses 22 and 23 emphasize uh, the fact that she's provided for herself. And then verse 23, her husband is known in the gates. Because of her reputation also enhances his reputation. The reason gates are mentioned is because in the ancient world, a lot of the commerce, and it's basically the place where the city council and the courts would sit, and this is where you would go to find the leaders of the city in order to uh, bring any kind of dispute before them or to get uh, counsel or wisdom in terms of decisions you were making. So her husband, as known in the gates, means that his wisdom and his advice is sought after. He has a position of power and influence, and that isn't because of her, but it's enhanced by what she does. She is the model of being a helper, an assistant, an aider for her husband. Verses 24 and 25 continue to emphasize all that, that she provides for the family, uh, including her character, and this is all based upon her her strength and honor. Now, I want to take us there to just the conclusion in verses 28 to 31. We see that because of her emphasis on first spiritual values and wisdom and the way that works itself out in terms of application, then she receives glory and honor from her children. They rise up and they call her blessed. And then her husband also praises her uh, because what she has done is to sacrifice and give of herself for the benefit of the family, and that is uh, responded to in gratitude. And her husband says, well, many daughters have done well. There are many women in, in the land who have done well and been successful, but you excel them all. He values his wife for what she has done and for what her contribution to the family, and he praises her for that. And this is something that, that many men need to develop a skill at in terms of praising their wives for what they contribute to the family because of the, and that enhances the entire, uh, entire, uh, partnership. And then the focus at the end is on the real value, which is eternal, that charm, that is external uh, activities and beauty are passing. They're temporary. They, they don't last. But the real value is the spiritual value. The woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hand. She has the right to enjoy the result of her labor and let her own works praise her in the gates, that it is her accomplishment at the end of her life is what will bring her eternal uh, eternal respect, eternal value and rewards because of what she has done. With this, we're concluding our study in Proverbs. N- next week, we're going to begin a new series on the life of Jesus, and we'll begin that next Sunday with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to reflect upon the values that uh, you have uh, instructed us in through your word, especially related to the character of a virtuous or valorous woman. But that these principles also apply in many ways to men in terms of industriousness, labor, work, providing for the family, providing for the future, and working together uh, with the wife who is uh, the helper you have given us that we may excel in the calling that you have given to each of us. 
Father, we pray for the ability to think objectively about these things in terms of our own life and put these principles into practice in our own life that we may recognize that the only way to excel is to excel in terms of our walk with you, and then you take care of the rest in our life. Father, we pray for anyone here that might not uh, be sure or certain of their eternal life. Perhaps they have never uh, faced the real challenge of the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. And the scriptures make it very clear that our salvation is not based on who we are, what we do. It's based upon who you are and what Christ did on the cross. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin that we might have forgiveness forever by simply accepting that free gift, that free offer of salvation, and that once we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we're regenerate, we're justified, we're reconciled, and this is an irreversible process, and we have eternal life forever and ever. Father, we pray that you would challenge each one of us here, believers, with the fact that we need to implement spiritual principles that we might uh, be successful in living a wise life to glorify you, and for unbelievers, that they need to put their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation so that they might have eternal life and a new, rich, full, and abundant life which you have promised us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.